We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. John Collier and I were standing downstairs before potluck a few weeks ago, and a lady that neither one of us recognized came through the doors, and she said, I'm looking for my honey. And I thought, well, I'm pretty sure I know everybody that's left at potluck today, and they don't have any honeys that I wouldn't recognize. And then, to me and John's surprise, she turns and she sees Peyton, and she says, oh, there he is. (laughs) And John and I, as they walked out the door together, John and I said, well, I'm surprised we're finding out this way. And why in the world can Peyton's honey make it to potluck and not church? As John and I sort of stared in disbelief, in the the deep recesses of my mind, I began to process this. My brain went to work, and something in the back of my mind kept saying, Black Hills, liquid gold. And I looked at John after two minutes, and I said, Honey, Peyton sells honey. She's buying Peyton's honey. Peyton is not her Honey, it's funny how, you know, the same word in two different settings can mean completely different things. I asked Peyton if I could share that, by the way. In Proverbs 9, there are two parties that are being thrown by two very different hosts. And what happens is these two ladies, they send out actually identical invites to the same Audience, if you look there in verse 4, verse 4 and verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. They have the exact same invitation, the exact same wording that goes out, inviting the simple to their party. Though the words are the same, though the invitation is identical, the outcome of these two parties could not be any different. How you hear and interpret and respond to this invitation is actually a matter of life and death. So there's three points to Proverbs chapter 9. We're actually, even though I printed the notes a little early this week, we're only going to make it through two today. Let me give you the structure of the passage and I'll tell you what we're going to hit next week. In the first six verses, you'll see there's three groupings of six verses. In the first grouping, we see Lady Wisdom preparing for this party that she is throwing. In verses 7 through 12, the next group of six, there's sort of a a time out there where we we get a contrast between wisdom and folly. And then lastly, you see the second party, Woman Folly. She's preparing. She's throwing her own party. And so what we're actually going to do is we're going to look at the two brackets. We're going to look at the two invitations. And then next week we'll come back and we'll look at the heart of the passage there in verses 7 through 12. So you can kind of skip around on your notes. Here's the main point. Because God is the source of all wisdom, all who come to him can live God's way in God's world for God's glory. Because God is the source of all wisdom, all who come to him can live God's way in God's world, for God's glory. Look there at wisdom's invitation in the first six verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. 
She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. The chapter opens with a woman named Wisdom preparing for a party. Now this is an example of what we call personification. And even if you couldn't define personification, you, you know what it is. You, you, you could recognize it if you see it. It's the assigning of personal nature to something that doesn't, in fact, possess personal nature. If you've ever dipped an Oreo in milk and, and partaken of that and said, you know, indeed, the Oreo is milk's favorite cookie. That's personification. Of course, milk doesn't have a favorite cookie. You're assigning human attributes to something that doesn't indeed possess uh, human nature. So wisdom here is personified as this lady. And it, it really is it's a, it's a picture of God's wisdom. It, it's a picture then of God beckon, beckoning us to himself to find true and biblical wisdom. So we want to understand, what is wisdom then? Biblically, how do we understand this, this wisdom that we prayed earlier, God gives it so freely and graciously to us? We need to be careful because in our day and age, wisdom is typically thought to be more of an intellectual category. It's the great debater. It's the intellectual giant. It's the witty, sarcastic person who is wise today. But in the Bible, wisdom is more than just an intellectual category. It's a moral category. It's the one who knows and loves and obeys God who is truly wise. So we might define wisdom that we're being invited to here. We might define wisdom as the insight and ability to navigate the trials and temptations of life in ways that glorify God. It's the insight and the skill necessary to navigate the trials and temptations of life in ways that glorify God. You can think about it in terms of the difference between inner tubing down a river and kayaking down a river. If you are in an inner tube, you're pretty much at the mercy of the current. I mean, you can try to paddle and do your thing, but it, it's hard, right? You're, you're not going to be able to move very skillfully or very easily through the river. The river is going to take you wherever it wants to take you. If you're in a kayak and you know how to use the kayak, then you can skillfully navigate the river and, and go to whichever part of the river you desire by simply paddling. So wisdom is like being in the kayak. It's the skill to navigate this life. And so as I think about Proverbs as a whole and the way it speaks about wisdom, I think we should define wisdom as living God's way in God's world for God's glory. It's living God's way in God's world for God's glory. So here we have Lady Wisdom, and she has built a magnificent house. Her large mansion is adorned with seven pillars representing the completeness, the fullness of God's wisdom. Really the perfection of his 
wisdom. It is rich and it is complete. And inside this beautiful mansion, this classy lady named Wisdom is preparing a feast. And not just any feast, right? but all, all your favorites, whatever, whatever that is. It's probably hard for us to appreciate, verse 2, that she has slaughtered her beasts. Because for us, we, many of us, eat meat with every meal. At this point, though, in this culture, meat was a luxury, right? It was a celebration. It wasn't something you expected at every meal and at a midnight snack. We can likely think of times where there's a special occasion in the Bible where it called for the preparation of meat. You can think about the prodigal son, for instance. When he returns, the father says, kill the fattened calf. Let's eat and celebrate, for my son has returned. And so we see here that Lady Wisdom is sparing no expense. This is a celebration. She has mixed her, which is probably not mixing it with water here, but mixing it with spices to make it even more attractive, more enjoyable. So one of the things I love about this chapter, and we'll get to this towards the end uh, more explicitly, but it doesn't just say, seek God and His wisdom. It doesn't just tell us what to do. Instead, it describes to us the beauty, the desirability, and the marvelous nature of God's wisdom. It holds it up for us and draws our hearts to desire it and want it as we see how delightful God's wisdom truly is. So the table is set there at the end of Verse 2, Lady Wisdom has she's built her house, her beautiful mansion. She's prepared her feast. She has mixed her wine, and she has set her table. She is ready to receive her guests. And if that's all you had, you might assume that she is preparing for some royalty, that she is preparing for some delegation of nobility. But if you look down there at verse 3, you see that this, this invitation, it goes out indiscriminately. She has sent out her young women. Really, it should probably read there. And she calls. The, the young lady go with the young ladies, the young maidens go with her message. She's calling out indiscriminately for those who would be willing to come. It's a public call. It's not a secret invitation. It's not the party you hear about after the fact and wonder why you weren't invited. You've been invited. Wisdom is calling out from the heights. She's inviting indiscriminately. Wisdom then, here in our text, desires to instruct. We might say it this way. God desires for you to learn wisdom. God desires for you to find in Him everything you need to live God's way in God's world for God's glory. Verse 4 even makes it clearer. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Now, that term simple, it can seem offensive, and we're going to talk about the fool later, but again, we're talking about moral categories here, not, not necessarily intellectual categories where you got the dummies and the smarties. It's not that. It's, it, it's you've got those who hear the call of wisdom and respond, and you've got those who reject God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
So this isn't an, an insult as much as it is describing the, the, the imagery of this young man who's on the path and he's hearing the two different invitations to the party. Really, it's you and I. We're, we're, we are standing on the path having these two ladies call out to us. If you are simple, turn in here. Do you lack wisdom? Come, come to my party. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mixed. We said earlier, then, as we think about wisdom, we know that all wisdom is bound up in God. That He alone can claim to possess all wisdom. And here it is calling out that you may partake, that you may obtain wisdom from God. Isn't it a comfort to know that God is not stingy when it comes to dispensing wisdom? We should rejoice in the fact that God freely bestows His wisdom on all who ask of Him. He has all wisdom. He has an unlimited, unlimited supply of wisdom, so He is generous with His wisdom. He's inviting you to come and to partake. In fact, if we wanted to put to the test just how willing is God to bestow His wisdom, we might look then to the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ into this world. As God in the flesh, Jesus embodied true wisdom. He was the only fully and truly wise person to ever walk this earth. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yet we have lived as fools in this world. Again, the fool says in his heart, there, there is no God. And we've all been guilty of living as if God does not exist, of spurning, uh, spurning His way and His will. Yet Jesus has come into the world to save those who have acted foolishly, sinfully, rebelling against Him, living as if He has no authority whatsoever in our lives. He not only then justifies us, forgives us of all our sins, but Christ saves so completely, He saves so fully, that it not only forgives us, but He grants us everything we need to walk wisely in this world, to obey God, and to do His will for His glory. We quoted Colossians chapter 2 earlier, alluded to it, that, that in Christ are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. It's not that he's playing keep away or hide and seek. It's that they are wrapped up. They're contained in Christ. You know what else is hidden with Christ in the book of Colossians? His people. You, you if, you are, if you've turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are hidden with Christ and given access to the wisdom of God. And so we might say that possessing wisdom, true wisdom, begins with Christ. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians that Christ became wisdom for us. Look at verse 6. And how, do I, how do I respond to this news that God has come into the world? He has, personified, he, has, he has been the true picture of wisdom. How do I respond to this in verse 6? Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. See, see this, this wisdom, it's not just something you sort of add to your, to your knowledge bank. It's not just a change of perception. It's not just a new outlook on life in the new year. New year, new me. It's not that. This is, this is repentance. 
This is a turning from my simple ways, my lack of commitment to God. I'm turning from that and I'm turning to Christ. Leaving your old life and embracing the one who has come. The one who possesses all wisdom. You know, if you are in Christ this morning, I, I think the call is this, to keep returning to the feast. To keep coming back to the feast. It is rehearsing in your mind the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is choosing every day to not lean on my own understanding, but to instead trust the Lord. It is renewing my mind daily and your mind daily by the word of God and hiding the word of God in your heart so that you might not sin against him. This is the invitation. Find wisdom, but wisdom comes through knowing Christ. Come to Christ. Find in him all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Learn then, after you've come to Christ in repentance, to live the way that God has called you to live, to actually live out a wise life. My hope then is to show you the parallel invitation in the last six verses. As I said, I'd really, I really had hoped to preach the whole chapter, but as I began to write it, I realized I was going to have to really rush through that middle section, and I, I didn't want to do that. So look with me then at verses 13 through 18, where we find folly's invitation, or we might say wisdom's opposite. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Here's the same invitation. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So we move then from from this classy lady named Wisdom to the chaotic, really one commentary said she's restless and she's rootless. She doesn't have roots, she's just chaotic, moving about. Woman folly. The text says that that this, this woman is loud and boisterous. She shares many of the similarities of the seductive woman that's talked about other places in the book of Proverbs. She's cunning and she seeks to lead people astray. That word seductive there means something like undisciplined. She's she's rootless. She's restless. And she knows nothing. Again, that's not saying she's she's a dummy. It's It's a moral ignorance. She doesn't care about right and wrong. She knows no shame. Now this is it's clear already by this point that this is not someone you want to hang around. Whereas wisdom has her beautiful seven-pillared home, her feast that she has prepared, and she's calling out from the heights. She sent her maidens out to sing. Folly just sits at the door. She's just screaming out. She's loud. She's boisterous. She's sitting on one of those foldable chairs on her front porch just screaming at you. The loud woman sits down and screams at the passerby. She too, she calls from the highest 
places of the town. She calls out to those, the text says, who are going straight on the way. In the book of Proverbs, if we were to start in the beginning and kind of read through the book of Proverbs, we'd see that the way is your life. It's, it's the path that you are walking in this life. And so interestingly, she targets the same audience with the same words. As we said in verse 16, she has the same audience in mind. She's trying to catch the passerby. She's trying to catch the simple. She's trying to catch the man on the path. What's interesting then is that woman folly imitates lady wisdom. Same invitation, same cry. She too has a party. So I think we should learn from this that we need to be careful not to be deceived by foolishness because sometimes foolishness looks like wisdom. We need to be careful to discern God's voice from the cultural air that we breathe every day. We might think about something like legalism to, to illustrate this point of how, wit, how foolishness can disguise itself as wisdom. Legalism is really a, a two-sided coin. On the one side is the idea that our, our forgiveness of sins, our, counted, our being counted righteous, our justification, is dependent on our good works. I must earn my own righteousness. On the other side of the coin is the idea that, that we have, in and of ourselves, what it takes to please and obey God apart from the working of the Holy Spirit and the, me being united with Christ. I have what it takes to obey God, and if I obey God, He will love me to a greater degree because after all, it's really me working this in the end, isn't it? And so you can see how something like legalism might parade as wisdom and sneak into our thinking. God demands that we be righteous. God delights in our obedience. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So it, 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 we might, if we're not careful, think, well, it, it must follow that it's up to me to earn my own righteousness. Or it's up to me to make God love me based on my own obedience. But Paul reminds us, again, I feel like I've been hanging out in Colossians a little bit this morning, but that's okay, that this is dangerous. This sort of legalism is, is dangerous because it pushes the attention off of Christ and it puts the attention on us. And when the attention's on us and it's not on Christ, we don't seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul goes so far to say the problem with legalism is that it has an appearance of wisdom. The problem is legalism does nothing to help you become like Christ. It does nothing to put to death the desires of the flesh. So even Paul says legalism, it, 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 if you're not careful, it might look like wisdom. But it's foolishness. So don't be fooled. Be careful. Be discerning. The invitations are the same, but the parties are quite different. Take a look. She hasn't been laboring hard. She hasn't built her own mansion. She hasn't slaughtered the animals to provide a scrumptious feast. She hasn't been making her own wine and mixing it with spices. She doesn't have anything close 
Look at her appeal in verse 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Bread and water. And, and we think, that's, that's all? Bread and water? Where's the wine? Where's the meat? You know, we've, we try to teach our kids to be polite when somebody has over to the house and they're feeding us dinner, but if somebody sets some Wonder Bread and a glass of warm water in front of us, I can't guarantee we could keep them under control. But notice, though, the, the allure with which she speaks. It's stolen water. It's bread eaten in secret. There, there's a deceitfulness to it all. There's a, there's a forbidden nature that, that draws out the sinfulness of our own flesh. You see, the answer, intellectually, it's so obvious. Which party? Of course I'm going to Lady Wisdom's party. You have grilled ribeye and asparagus and mashed potatoes over here, or you get Wonder Bread and water. It's so, so obvious. But we aren't neutral observers, are we? We're not neutral in this decision-making process. We're not just completely logical creatures. We wrestle with what the Bible calls the flesh that desires that which is secretive, that which is forbidden. I read this quote this week from Derek Kidner. He said, Eve had to be convinced that the sweetness would survive the stealing. We have fallen far enough to be persuaded that it depends on it. Let me read it again and then I'll explain what he's saying. Eve had to be convinced that the sweetness would survive the stealing. We have fallen far enough to be persuaded that it depends on it. Now, if we, can, if we can meditate on that line, it's actually a brilliant line. I had to read it three or four times myself to capture it. So let me, let me think about this with you. Eve knew it was wrong. She knew the stealing was wrong, but she became convinced that it'd be worth to steal the fruit off the vine if I can become like God. It'll be worth doing that which is forbidden because I get this reward in the end. But Derek Kidner says, We have fallen so far and we've been so deceived by sin that we are convinced that sin is sweet precisely because it is forbidden. That sin is sweet precisely because God says we can't have it. Parents know this well. If there's something dangerous in the home, what do you do in your mind? You say, do I tell them not to or not? Because the second I tell them not to, like the stove is hot. Do I say don't touch the stove? Because when I say don't touch the stove, they're going to want to touch the stove. Or don't grab the knife, they're going to want to grab the knife. That which is forbidden, it, it draws us to it. But if we're honest, for those of us who aren't kids this morning, we are like that as well, aren't we? That which is forbidden is attractive to us. You know, how fast will I drive? A little faster than that sign says, I can drive. Men's sinful lust is chasing that which is forbidden. It's coveting that which God has chosen not to give you in this moment. It's forbidden, so our flesh craves it. Gossip is, is like sweet sounding to our ears because we are receiving access into something that we know should remain hidden. Our flesh is so deceitful. 
We can see here how Lady Folly has disguised the fact that she only has bread and water by making it seem appealing and alluring. It's stolen and it's eaten in secret. If you're a fan of the Star Wars movies, you might think of Admiral Akbar. It's a trap. She's slaying her trap. But God, in His grace and in His kindness this morning, He's pulling back the curtain. He is exposing the trap. He is exposing the ruse. Look there at verse 18. This isn't a party. This is a funeral. He does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Ed Welch says it's a banquet in the grave. It's a party in the grave. If you choose to spurn God and His wisdom and His Son, Jesus Christ, who embodied wisdom, you will come expecting sustenance. And instead, you die. Obviously, not some instant death, but we know that foolishness and sin are killers. They ensnare their victim. They destroy lives. And ultimately, sin leaves you separated from the goodness of God for all eternity. When you party with woman folly, you can expect the the worst possible outcomes. It's a banquet in the grave, after all. In fact, if you're a believer this morning, one little tool you might add to your arsenal, and this is not the only tool in your arsenal, but one little addition to your arsenal of fighting sin this year might be to consider your sin and just assume the worst case scenario, the worst possible outcome of any particular sin. You see, the whole genre of wisdom assumes this. The way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. If you choose to live your way in your world for your glory, life is oftentimes harder for you. This isn't some prosperity message. This isn't some guarantee. It's an observation that Solomon makes in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, that the way of the transgressor is hard. Life is hard enough. We complicate it when we live contrary to the way the Creator has designed His world. And you know, God may very well keep you from the full consequences of, of sin, the full discipline of your sin. But by us considering how this sin might have enduring consequences, maybe we can sort of unmask woman folly a bit. Maybe we can see behind the curtain for a moment and see the ugliness and the bitterness of sin and foolishness. So we've been invited. These guests at this party are found in the depths of Sheol. This can often be called just the place of the dead. But there are places in in wisdom literature where it carries the idea of judgment, even the dwelling place of of the wicked. So sometimes it just means the grave. Righteous and unrighteous can be in the grave. Sometimes it carries with it the idea of judgment, the dwelling place of the wicked. So the ultimate warning here is that those who scoff at God, those who spurn Him, They will be found separated from all God's goodness for all eternity. There's only wrath to bear for those who spurn God's wisdom and goodness and the wrath-bearing sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way, there's a broad path and there's many who 
find it. The way is easy, but the end of that path is destruction. But there's a narrow way, the way of wisdom, the way that begins with coming through the gate, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it continues with obedience and submission to Him and to His will. This path is hard, the Lord says, but its end is life. Jesus said, there's a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the flood of God's judgment crashes against that house, the house stands because it's been built on the rock who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wise man is the one who hears and does the word of God. There's a fool who hears the word of God and does not do the word of God. His house is built on the sand, Jesus said. And when the flood of God's judgment comes, that house is wiped off the face of this planet. The judgment is great, and great is the fall of that house, Jesus says. Dan read Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. What happens to the wicked in Psalm 1? The, the, the blessed man is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that's bearing its fruit in its season. The wicked man is not so. It's like chaff. They're blown away in the judgment. The wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. How can I be righteous? Only through Christ. Only through Christ. There are two parties. There are two ways to live. There are two paths. There's wheat and there's chaff. There's two foundations on which you might build your house. There doesn't seem to be a middle ground. There's an interesting detail recorded in this chapter. And it's that both of these ladies are calling out, it says, from the heights of the, the city, from the heights of the town. Now, this would typically be the location of, of a temple, either to the Lord, as you think about going up to Jerusalem, or to an idol. And so I think Solomon slips these details in there to draw our attention to this, this idea of worship. What this ultimately boils down to is God's invitation and a worthless idol's invitation. God invites you to life. He invites you to joy. He invites you to uh, a feast to freedom, to eternal rest, enjoying His goodness for all eternity, all of His benefits flowing to those who come to Christ. While all the idols of this world are wooing you, they're calling you with these false promises of joy, these false promises of freedom, these false promises of riches. Maybe it's a false god of materialism. If I can just get more stuff, then I would know true joy. Or perhaps it's the idol of acceptance. If more people would just praise me and, and love me and accept me, then I would know real happiness. Maybe it's the idol of pleasure. If I could just get that one thing, if I could just get the thing that I so want, then I would be truly satisfied. These idols are calling out to you with these promises. They're promising you a party, but the result is death. The result is death. Fulfilling the sinful desires of the flesh never brings true life. Never brings true life. It produces death. 
I love that line from one of the hymns we sing from time to time. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't wait. Don't try to clean yourself up before the Lord. Come to Christ. He justifies. He cleanses. He purifies. He forgives. You know, as I read Proverbs 9, I, th- I think the story ends sort of abruptly. You would expect a kind of resolution. You would expect that the, the, the man on the path would choose one of the parties. So the question in my mind is, is why is there no resolution? I think, it's, I think it's this, because you're the one on the path. You're the one, you, you choose. God, working through the author of Proverbs, genuinely calls for us to make a decision. You've received two invitations. Which will you choose? You know, typically if you receive two invitations to, to two parties at the same time, you know, if, if you've already committed to one, you sort of need to, to go to that party, right? Don't be that guy that's like, you know, Liz and I one time invited a friend for dinner. He, you know what he asked? What are, what are you having? Don't be, don't be that guy in terms of your friends inviting you over. But this is actually, this is the place. This is the place where you're actually meant to, you're commanded to weigh the options. What are we having? That's, that's a good and a right question. Choose wisdom. Come and see the beauty of the wisdom of God. As we've said, it's displayed for us in the life of Jesus Christ. If wisdom is living God's way and God's world for God's glory, we see that most clearly in Christ. He always trusted, always served, always loved, always obeyed, always sacrificed. He lived this wonderful, beautiful life because he lived a life of wisdom. And that's one way that Christ exemplifies the wisdom of God. But there's another way that God's wisdom is explained, shown, demonstrated in Christ. Not only through his life, but through the cross of Christ. Through the death of Christ. The wisdom of God is displayed in the cross of Christ, the Son of God. Dying for his enemies. It sounds like foolishness. Until you take a closer look. Until you've believed the gospel. You see then that the cross is the wisdom of God from above. So here wisdom cries out, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. You see the true cost of this party is the bread of life. Jesus Christ, who spills his blood for us. We're going to look at that in a minute in communion. He spills his blood on our behalf that we might leave our simple ways and live. How wonderful is God's wisdom. Let's wrap up this way. One more illustration. In Greek mythology, surely you've heard of the sirens. These are women-like creatures who would sing out to sailors as they passed by in their ships. 
And their song is so beautiful, it's so compelling, it's so captivating that sailors would turn their ships and they would die as they ran upon the rocky shores of the island from which the sirens call. And in Greek mythology, there's two men who have successfully sailed past the sirens. The one you are probably familiar with, the one you've most likely heard about, is a man named Odysseus. Knowing the danger of the sirens, he plugged up the, the ears of his men with wax and he commanded them, just bind me to the ship so that I can't steer the ship in the direction of the sirens. And They lost a few men, but they did not go to their peril, to their destruction. The other to do it successfully was Orpheus. Orpheus was the greatest musician and the greatest, greatest poet in all the land. And as the ship approached and the siren's call began to ring out across the water, instead of binding himself, instead of plugging up the ears of his men, Orpheus pulls out his harp and plays a more compelling, a more beautiful, a more lovely song so that his men aren't drawn to the siren's call because they have something more compelling, more satisfying right in front of them. And what Proverbs 9 does, it doesn't stop up our ears from looking at woman folly. Instead, what Proverbs 9 is, it's, it's playing for us a more compelling, a more beautiful vision of what life can be, of, of Christ himself. We hear woman folly's invitation loud and clear. We see it. We hear that we've been invited. But we also see that she is loud and boisterous, rootless and restless. And that her party is nothing compared with the glory and the beauty of God's wisdom available to us in Christ Jesus. He compels us to come and to celebrate the feast which he has prepared for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we so need you, Father. May this year be a year, by the end of it, we could characterize as growth, in wisdom, that we've returned to the feast over and over. We've delighted ourselves in Christ. We've done what the author of Hebrews calls us to do. Consider Jesus. Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.